Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. We wanted to talk about discipleship this morning because uh, I think we're supposed to be doing something about that, Jesus said. And I think you guys got it here because I, li- I love your motto, disciples who make disciples, because you're not just thinking about making disciples, but you're thinking third generation. I like churches that think the third generation. I've often encouraged that in my messages. Let's not think about making disciples, but disciples that make disciples. Excellent. Wonderful. So uh, I think we'll, we'll, what we'll say will resonate with you. And I know that you have your programs. I don't even know how you do that here. Uh, I have kind of some ideas how you do that here. Every church seems to do it differently. So we're not talking about methodology. Um, we're not even going to talk about what so much what a disciple is, but I kind of want you to see, uh, they say a picture's worth a thousand words, and what I want you to see is a movie today, a movie of a disciple, a biography that shows you kind of what how a disciple is made. And I want that movie, it's going to star Peter, the apostle, and we're just going to take a look at his life and, uh, and, and see what he went through as Jesus turned him from a crude, rugged fisherman into a disciple who was following Jesus and bringing other people to him and discipling other people. Stephen Covey, in his book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, said that we should begin with the end in mind. So when we talk about a disciple, what are we talking about? Disciple, of course, means a learner or a pupil or a student or an apprentice. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 24, we read that a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. And then he goes on to say, if they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his house? But the point I want to make from the first part of the verse is that a disciple is one who becomes like his master. In, In the first century, a disciple was not someone who enrolled in classes or in a subject, but they enrolled in a person. They followed a rabbi, and they lived with him, and they traveled with him, and they stayed where he stayed until they became like him. That's quite different from our Western method of, of training someone. But that's how it was in the first century. That's what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That they, were, they were on this journey of following a man, and they would become like him. And now we know that the Bible tells us to make disciples of others. And so we know then that we want them to become like their master, not like us, but like the master, Jesus Christ. And we also understand that there's going to be a process involved. But before we or they embark, we want to understand what that journey entails. And I think we can get an idea from the life of Peter, what it takes to make a disciple. Now, why Peter? Have you ever said or heard someone say, you know, that guy Peter, I really identify with him. Ever said that yourself or heard someone say that? You know why that is? You say that? Because God intended it that way. I am fully convinced. Why am I convinced of that? Well, first of all, we have more written about Peter's life in the Gospels than anyone else. Secondly, every time that the disciples are listed, the apostles are listed, Peter is listed first. He was uh, also one of the, uh, the spokesmen for the group. Usually when Jesus asked a question or even when Jesus didn't ask a question, Peter spoke up to represent the group. And then he was also one of the inner three with, along with James and John, remember? So Peter just seems to be held up for us as a model of what it means to be a disciple. What I found as I studied the scriptures is that 
there seem to be times where Jesus said to Peter, follow me or come after me. Sometimes it was to Peter as an individual. Sometimes it was within the group. But you trace these things of follow me, come after me and be my disciple. And and you can kind of see that there's a progression. He didn't just say it once to Peter. He said it when he first met Peter. He said it after his resurrection. So what's going on there? And uh, and I kind of broke it down on, in your outline to seven stages of what it be of following and wh- how a disciple is made. For example, the first stage is a following, a finding stage. I'm sorry, a finding stage. Uh, and we see that in John chapter one, where where Peter first meets Jesus. And uh, in John chapter one, you remember that Andrew, Peter's brother, went and found Peter and brought him to Jesus and said. We have found the Messiah. You might want to advance the the slide to that passage, John chapter 1. And it doesn't say anything that Peter said there, but in verse uh, 35 through 42, um, we found the Messiah. But the interesting thing is that when he brought him to Jesus, Jesus looked at Peter And he said to him, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. From now on, you'll be called Cephas. Some significance to what he said. Simon means hearer, one who hears or listens. Cephas means rock or stone. So what Jesus was doing was looking at this raw, uncouth man, unsaved man at this point, I believe, and saying, look, right now you're, you're going to go from a hearer into being a rock, a foundation, something strong. And so it, it's a preparatory stage for discipleship. There has to be a point somewhere where we come to know Christ as our Savior. And this was Peter's first encounter. It doesn't tell us he believes here, but it does tell us in the next chapter of John, chapter 2, verse 11, that at the wedding in Cana, the disciples believed in him. So by chapter 2, he was saved, and certainly in chapter 6, when he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, you have the words of eternal life, Peter absolutely had believed. At some point in our lives, we have to come to know Christ as our Savior. We have to be convinced that he gives us eternal life and and, and that we are are his, and be fully assured of that. That's the starting point for discipleship. So that's a time when we see Christ's uniqueness. We see Christ's uniqueness. It attracts us. We're hearers at first. But then we believe and we become believers because we understand he's the only one that has the words of eternal life. But then the interesting thing is that when we come to Jesus and he opens the scriptures for us today and says through them to us that he has a vision for our life. And so when we are making disciples, we need to make sure that we give the disciples a vision for what God can do in their life. It just amazes me that Jesus would look at a man like Peter and say, you're going to be called a rock. (laughs) Peter didn't feel like a rock at the moment. I know that we look at unbelievers sometimes and we say, hmm, no chance. I I feel so badly because I have reached that judgment so many times in my past life when I've seen someone who is an alcoholic and said, no chance. God can't do anything with that mess. And yet, I hear years later that they've they've gotten saved and they're a deacon in the church to my re, to my wonderful rebuke. 
or, or like the fellow who comes into church on, on one of our special occasions, you know, and he's, his language is so bad. I said, God could never clean that mess up, but he gets saved and, and he becomes a leader in the church. God has done that over and over to me. I don't know when I'm going to get it, but God just changes lives and turns hearers into rocks and, and just turn, gives people a, a new vision and direction for life. And we need to help those who are coming to Christ in our ministries see that they can become something else, that God has something greater in store for them. That's part of this, the process of making a disciple. It's this finding stage. We find Christ as Savior, and we find that he has a different purpose for our life. And then Peter's, Peter had another encounter with Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. I truly believe that this is a different occasion in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, it seems to have happened about four months later, chronologically. And Peter then had probably already believed he's on the Sea of Galilee in the north. He's fishing, or actually he's uh, cleaning his nets, it says in the, the account. Uh, and so we come to Matthew 4 in verse 18. It says, Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. This is the following stage where Peter had, who seemed to have already been acquainted with Jesus' message, had already met him, because we know that in John 1. But now, because John 1 took place in the south, by the way, in Judah. Peter was evidently there for a feast. But now in the north, in Galilee, Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Now, follow me is a term that seems to have that formal invitation to it. It means be my disciple. Jesus wouldn't just say, hey, you know, hang around with me for a while or, you know, walk like I walk or just walk after me, get in line. He wasn't saying that. He was saying, be my disciple. A parallel to that is the term come after me in the Gospels. If you do a little study, I think you'll be convinced as I am that the terms come after me and follow me are discipleship terms. On the other hand, when Jesus says, come to me, that's an evangelistic invitation. That means come to me as Savior, believe in me as Savior, but then follow after me or come after me as a disciple. So there's a difference there. And here he's saying, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Peter, who had already been acquainted with Christ, so I, I assume now has believed in Christ, says, okay, let's amp it up. And he left his nets and he followed Jesus. He, he saw a new purpose in life because Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. I'll use you to bring other people in. Of course, he was playing on Peter's most common uh, uh, knowledge and experience of fishing. But I'm going to help you do now that with men. Wouldn't it be wonderful to, to have a vision of turning our skills and ability and our gifts uh, from, from, uh, from wiring wires or, or teaching mathematics into a mission field for God so that we are fishing for people wherever we are? I met a fellow who had just graduated from college. He said, well, I really want to go in the ministry, but right now I'm just working in a factory. And I said, oh, so you're a missionary in your factory. <laughs> he said, yeah, I guess I am. I was talking to someone last night who had great knowledge of video uh, because I had some ideas in mind. And he's doing some wonderful work for some a secular company, but, I, I'm, but he, he's being challenged by God to use his knowledge for the Lord to fish for men. Whatever you're doing right now in your classroom, students, or, or in your office, or 
uh, in your home or with your sports clubs or teams or wherever you are, you can be a fisher for men and women and children for Jesus Christ. If you adopt God's, that is God's purpose for your life as it was for his, because he said, he said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. So Peter saw that he had a, a purpose in life. And I like the way Mark's account says it, because in Mark chapter one, Jesus said, I will make you to become fishers of men. He implies that there is a process there. I will make you to become fishers of men. Jesus said that the responsibility is mine as Jesus to make you fishers of men. People say, oh, I can't I can't share the gospel. I'm, I'm afraid. I'm I'm embarrassed. I'm I'm not bold enough. Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. It's his responsibility. All you need to do is take that first step in following. So I don't know the process that you use here, but are you teamed up with a group, a discipleship group, or with someone who knows more than you, where you can begin to learn the things that will help you become a better fisher of men? I challenge each and every one of you, not just to attend on Sunday, but to get involved in something that will help you go down that road of discipleship so that you can make disciples who will make disciples. So we see Christ's purpose for our life and what a wonderful purpose that is. You know, we say there's a lot of things that we can do to get when we get to heaven. We can have Bible studies in heaven. We can worship in heaven. But we're not going to be able to win one person to Christ when we're in heaven. God's given us a short time to do that. What a wonderful purpose that is that we can, we can use in this life. And yet, everyday living takes quite a lot of our effort, doesn't it? We get all wrapped up in in the rat race, but at the end of the day, even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. Wouldn't it be more uh, significant to end our lives saying, boy, God, use me to bring some other people to him? The average Christian in three years has no unsaved friends, really. I read that somewhere. I actually met someone who, who said, who came bragging to me, and, and he was saying, he said, Yep, I don't have any friends who are unsaved. And I'm thinking to myself, maybe I said it to him. I said, that's too bad. That's too bad. We're missing God's most important purpose for our lives. So there's a following stage. It means that you need to take a first step to adopt his purpose for your life to fish for other people, no matter where you are right now. You don't have to go to India to do that. You can do that right here where God has placed you. You are a missionary, so to speak, a sent one where God has placed you. Well, then we go on to a third stage that I see, and I call it the forsaking stage. And, and I use uh, Mark, Luke chapter 5, because that's another occasion where Jesus says to Peter, you follow me. So we come to Luke chapter 5. Now, you're going to read this and say, aren't we just talking about the same story? Because they're at the sea again of Galilee. But if you look carefully, you will see differences between this story and Matthew 4. And I'm convinced it is a different story, and I'll explain why. Well, first of all, the multitude is standing and Jesus is teaching, whereas in, in Matthew 4, he's walking by. The fishermen are washing their nets, and it doesn't even seem there's a crowd around. But now he's standing there, and he's teaching, and um, uh, the fishermen are out of their boats. And so Jesus asked Peter if he can get in his boat and go out from the shore and teach from there. And so he does. And then from the boat, he, tells, he says, Peter, go out a little further and throw your net down. Now, you don't tell a fisherman how to fish. I'm a fisherman. Uh, I'm usually teaching people how to fish when they're with me because I've been doing it all of my life, and uh, I, I love to fish. Uh, so I don't like to be told too much how to fish, 
Um, but Peter knew that fish come into the shallower water at the, at the nighttime and early mornings, and then midday is when you mend your nets and wash them out. Um, in fact, we were at a coastal town in India, and that's what they were doing in the middle of the day. They were mending their nets right in front of our house where we stayed, but they put them out at night. So Peter must have certainly had this uh, this uh, prideful inner objection to Jesus' advice, but uh, it says in, uh, that nevertheless, verse 5, we, he said, we've toiled all night long, caught nothing, but at your word, I'll let down the net. You can kind of can see that attitude there. But when he did that, they caught such a great number of fish that they had to call another boat out. And it, they loaded it up, and the boats began to sink. And what did Peter do? In verse 8, he falls down at Jesus' knees and feet and says, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. What's going on with Peter here? I mean, he had questioned the Lord, but what was this deep repentance that was going on in his life? It occurs to me that if this is a different account from Matthew chapter 4, then Peter, who had started to follow Jesus, had left his net in chapter 4, had not really left everything because, first of all, he's fishing. And then second of all, if you look at the passage in verse 11, it says, when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. You see, in Matthew 4, he forsook his nets, and here he forsakes all. So the call to discipleship is one that Jesus seems to offer over and over again. And there is a sense in which a disciple can always become more of a disciple. He asked you to forsake something, and then he asked you to forsake everything. And Peter realized he hadn't forsaken everything, and so there was a forsaking stage where he really had to abandon his own will and everything he thought he knew, everything he had always trusted in for a living, his fishing, his means of support. This is a, a very radical decision. And leave it all. And then Jesus said to him in verse 10, Do not be afraid from now on. You will catch men. What is it that keeps us from abandoning everything for Jesus? It's fear. But we can't fish in a sea of fear. Sorry about the corny metaphor there. We can't fish out of fear. It takes some kind of boldness to say, Lord, I'm going to trust you. And Peter was learning to forsake his own self-sufficiency and rely on obedience to Jesus Christ to fish for men and accomplish that purpose that God had given to him in chapter 4. I don't think I'm reading too much in the scripture. I like to pay attention to details, and the details tell me it's a different story and something else is going on here than Matthew 4, and this is what I'm seeing. But, but isn't it true that you as a disciple have learned that, you know, when you first became a Christian, you were challenged in certain ways to make certain commitments, but then as you go along, it just seems like the challenges get bigger and bigger and bigger, and pretty soon, you know, God's not just asking for 10% or whatever it is. He, he's asking for your whole life. And it may not mean that you're going to leave everything like your family and, 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 and run off being a missionary in Africa. It, it's going to have a different meaning for each of us, but for Peter, it evidently meant, look, okay, Peter, that's the last fishing expedition for you now. You're going to live with me and be with me. So we see Christ's demands, and through faith and obedience, we obey him. And God tests us along the way. Are we going to be obedient to him and forsake our will in this area of our life? Are we going to forsake our own will when it comes to how we handle our finances? Are we going to forsake our own will when it comes to uh, our marriages 
when, when it comes to being fearful about witnessing, something like that? Can we really depend on the one who has commanded it to enable us to keep that command? This last trip to India, actually I had to make the decision to go to India back in July when I was in Africa because I had been corresponding about this trip for about a year with this team in India and um, there were a lot of unknowns and a lot of questions I had and I had about as much knowledge as I could get and I had to make a decision to go in July because my, I, when I asked my travel agents about, you know, could you check into some tickets, he said, well, you better buy them now because those seats are filled in January because it's a holiday season. And so I had to make a decision in July. But the decision is a big one because in, in addition to my own expenses, we had to come up with another $11,000 just for the conference to happen. And that's not in my budget. But it seems like God had led so much in this direction. And it was, was I just going to now obey his will and step take that step or not? And so it was nice to take that step in July and just see God provide that need and provide this the need for and the means for this conference to happen. When we step out, God works. When we see his demands and when we learn to obey, because the disciple is taught to obey with these tests, we're moving down the road to discipleship. And so what is he asking you to do today? Will you take that step of faith? Have you learned to forsake your own will, your own knowledge, your own self-sufficiency and depend on what God has told to do what he has told you to do? There's a stage of forsaking ourselves. In other places, Jesus said, you must deny yourself to follow me. Unfortunately, Peter's uh, curriculum, curriculum also included a course in failure. So there's a failure stage. And that comes uh, in John chapter 13 and, and the events that followed after that. And so in this fourth stage where Jesus mentions following, we see in John chapter 13, of course, that familiar scene where um, Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. Peter wouldn't let him wash his feet. Jesus said, if, you don't, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part in me. So he says, Go, wash my feet then. But then Jesus explains that he's going away, and where he's going, they cannot follow. So in John chapter 13, verse 36, uh, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me after. Now, see, there's that word, follow me. But there's going to be an interruption in that following. You can't follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for your sake. Peter was a macho man. Still shows some self-sufficiency there. He said, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you that the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus said, Jesus asked the question he knew the answer to. Peter said, I'll, I'll lay down my life. Jesus said, oh, will you? In Luke chapter 22, he, he says, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed that your faith not fail. And when you are restored, that you will strengthen your brothers. Well, you know what happened. Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and all the disciples split. Peter did stand up for a moment, but and he followed Jesus to the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest, but at a distance, the scripture tells us. Um, 
in 18, verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple that we take as John. And now that that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood at the door outside, and the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. And the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, Are you not one of this man's disciples? Are you one of these man's disciples, are you? And he, he said, I am not. Now, you have some irony in the passage, I think, because you've had Jesus say, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you'll follow me later. And then the passage says in verse 15 that Peter followed Jesus. But, as one, one of the texts says, he followed at a distance. So Peter's following, but not really. There's an interruption, a failure in his discipleship journey. This, of course, is at the end of, uh, near the end of Christ's ministry, uh, but Jesus wasn't finished in making Peter into a disciple yet. This was perhaps one of the most important classes that he had to take, Failure 101. You ever been in that class before? Did you pass? <laughs> You're still going through that class, midterm exams? Failure 101. Peter didn't do so great in the, in the class. But he had to learn to depend on God's sufficiency. And he found out that he really wasn't as self-sufficient as he thought. Peter's problems were pride. He thought he could do anything. Uh, presumption. He, he, he thought he could uh, always follow Jesus. And, and just a, a sense of self-sufficiency and of his own power. And Jesus had to teach him that where he thought he was strong, that's the area he would fail. We used to have a professor that would tell us that. He said, you will fail in the area of your greatest strength. And I have found that to be true. It's another story for another time. You will fail in the area of your greatest strength. Paul felt that same need for sufficiency in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, who is sufficient for these things? And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, in that well-known passage where he talks about praying for God to remove that thorn in the flesh, he says in verse 9, he's, Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I'll more gladly boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What Peter needed to learn was that he could not go and follow Jesus only on his own power. He, through failure, needed to learn that that's when we really come to know the grace of God. The part of that journey of discipleship is going through times of of failure. We may be moving forward, but sometimes we get diverted into a channel or, or take a step backwards. But the good news for you who have had an interruption in your journey, the good news for you who are in Failure 101 is that God's not finished with you. That's not the end of the line. There's a wonderful verse in one of Louis L'Amour's novels, and I don't know which novel, and I don't know who says it. I just pulled the line out, and I just thought it was great because this character says, there will come a time when it looks like everything is finished. That will be the beginning. I like what Chuck Swindoll used to say. He, he, and I pulled this from him. He said, before God can use a man greatly, he must hurt him deeply. Why? Because God needs to show us we can't do it on our own. We can't do the simplest things on our own. We can't do the hardest things on our own. We just can't do it on our own. We've got to live to learn that we will fail on our own if we have an attitude like Peter of pride, presumption, prayerlessness. 
We've got to depend on God for everything, every minute. But God's not finished with you yet. You've gone through a terrible time. Look at it as part of your discipleship. The important thing is that you're headed in the right direction. Peter was following, but at a distance. He just needed to catch up. He got slowed down in his journey. Maybe you feel like you've gotten slowed down somewhere. God's not finished with you yet. In fact, he may have a much greater ministry for you when you catch back up with him. That's the good news of discipleship. It's a process, and it's a lifetime journey. And then another stage I see is a feeding stage, and we come to John chapter 21. After the resurrection, uh, after Jesus had died and risen from the dead, Peter goes back to fishing. I, I mean, I guess he's saying, well, Jesus is going, what do I do? I, sometimes I say, what do I do? I'm going to go fishing. That's just kind of where I air out my brain and straighten things out. I, I love to hear the running water, and it just centers me again. And maybe that's what Peter was doing. You go back to what's familiar and uh, and soothing. and. So he's fishing again, and um, and an interesting conversation takes place there that you're very familiar with because Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And each time, you know, Peter kind of hedges his answers and is not quite sure of himself and finally says, okay, Lord, I love you, but it's not the, the strong word for love. And But each time Jesus says something, he says, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. And... What he's saying to Peter with the three answers to these three questions is that you're restored. I'm not finished with you, Peter. Now you can feed other people. Now that you've passed failure 101, you're at a place where you can feed other people from your life experience, from your firsthand knowledge. You've gone where they they are or are going to go, and you can teach them. You can feed them. You can shepherd them. You can be a pastor to them. You can be a teacher to them. Christ isn't going to let Peter mope and feel sorry for himself. He's going to give him a further defined purpose in his life. After all, when you think about it, Jesus had invested three years in this guy. He wasn't going to let him wash up. How many years has Jesus invested in you since you've come to know him? He's not going to let you finish. Uh, in failure, he's going to put you back on your feet and use you in some way and use you in a great way. He's going to build on the disciples' failure. So we see Christ's sufficiency, and then he, when we understand that it is his sufficiency, Jesus can build on any failure that we might encounter. But we come then to see his loving service to others, and he shows us how we can also serve others. And if we love Jesus Christ, as Peter was finally able to confess, then we will serve him. And the good or bad news is is that we don't serve him by dying for him necessarily. We serve him by living for him and using our lives for his purposes. So there's a stage in a disciple's life where we have to give. We've received and now we have to give and we have to, to help other people who have been broken and other people who have needs, those who have experienced weaknesses. And perhaps because of your life experiences and perhaps because of your failures and restoration, you are more equipped now to help other people. Ain't that great? Well, then there's another stage I see in Peter's life where Jesus challenges him to follow him, and that's in John 21, verses 20 through 22. You see, what happens here is John and Peter are walking with Jesus on the seashore, 
And um, <clears throat> Peter and Jesus tells Peter that in verse 18 how he's going to die. He says, Peter, there's going to come a time uh, when you were, when you were younger, you girded yourself, walked your way you wish. But when you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands, and another's going to gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And it tells us that Peter, that John was, Jesus was telling Peter how he was going to die. Tradition says that Peter died upside down on the cross, of course, with his hands stretched out. Well, so now he says in verse 19, "Follow me." But you see how much more impact those words have when somebody tells you that hey you're going to die for me now follow me so you see it, it's so wrong to take this as an invitation to salvation these words follow me as some people do here's peter at the end of his life jesus isn't saying get saved he's saying i've just told you how you're going to die you're still going to follow me you see what i mean when you when i say that there's a point there's a, a sense in which every disciple is challenged to become more of a disciple i'm sorry but it's just never finished and, and if you pass your discipleship class here at, at Stowe Memorial, that's not the end of your discipleship process. Rodney will tell you that. It's a lifetime process. A disciple's always challenged to be more of a disciple. But now to focus yourself on what God has intended to you. for, Because what Peter does is he turns around and he sees John and he, and he says to Jesus, uh, Lord, um, uh, what about this guy? Verse 21. Lord, what about this man? Jesus says to him, if I will that he remains till I come, what's that to you? Follow me. Again, second time to Peter. You follow me. Don't worry about him and what I've asked him to do. If he lives all the way until I come back, you follow me. What is the message here? We need to focus on what Christ, we need to see his ministry. And that he was focused on a ministry, but then we need to focus on our own ministry, our own unique ministry to which God has called us and for which he has gifted us. And that's why, you know, it doesn't serve purposes to compare yourself with one another because God has not called you to do what someone else is doing. You know, in semin semin this is one of the tragic consequences of being a seminary student. You're always looking at the other students and saying, you know, my doing as good as they're doing or am I going into the same kind of ministry or, you know, how are they doing these days? And God's called us on different paths. And it would be totally wrong for me to compare myself to Rodney and him to compare himself to me or for you to, to say I have to go to India or for me to say I should, shouldn't go to India. Don't worry about what others are doing. You follow me, Jesus said. And so we need to help disciples focus on their unique ministry. Help them find their unique gifting. What are the unique opportunities that God puts before you or them? What are the abilities that we, we have, the talents that we have? God has given them for a reason, I believe. And God wants to be a good steward of his gifts and use you effectively. You and I are not going to be another Billy Graham, I can safely say, in this part of the country. And uh, we're not going to be another James Dobson. And I, I'm just happy to be me and to be and to find out what God has gifted me to do and the opportunities that he's given me and to take advantage of that. I used to think that everyone should be in full-time ministry and used to be a little bit judgmental about those who, who weren't, I confess to you. But now I see that, you know, I'm glad everybody's not in full-time ministry. 
because then we wouldn't have people out there doing what you need to be doing out in the schools and the classrooms and the workplace. Because you're more powerful and effective in where you are if you're doing what, if you're following God and his purpose for your life. So focus your life then on what God has called you to do. But then there's a fruit bearing stage. I get that from passages uh, like Matthew 28, which is, of course, the Great Commission, where Jesus tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to do what he has commanded them. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe the things that have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. There has to be a fruit-bearing stage in the discipleship journey where we are multiplying ourselves, thinking about the next generation who will disciple the next generation. And did Peter do that? These words in Matthew 28 were spoken to Peter as well. Did Peter do that? Of course he did that. We look in the book of Acts and we see him preaching, throwing his net out over thousands of people, drawing them in for Christ. Chapter 3 does the same thing, throws his net out, draws them in fishing for Christ. Jesus said in John 15 that uh, uh, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so you will be my disciples. Disciples are intended to bear fruit with their lives. That fruit can mean converts, but it just means that you are experiencing the effects of your ministry, using your gifts to produce what God wants to see us produce, to make disciples according to God's plan. See, Jesus had a plan, and that plan was multiplication, not addition. And so we are to disciple those who will disciple others. And so show the disciple not only how to follow Jesus, but how to multiply. The best way to do that is uh, part of your discipleship plan is to multiply yourself into others, teach them to multiply themselves into others, and we will be doing discipleship the way God intended it. So this last stage is a fruit-bearing stage. That's when we get, begin to see what God is doing through and in our ministries. Well, what I'm trying to show you today uh, is that there that the discipleship is not, first of all, not salvation. Follow me does not mean get saved, because he says it to Peter all during his three years and then at the end. But follow me is a separate call. It's not a call to salvation. It's a call to follow Jesus Christ in a life of self-denial, commitment, obedience, and a new purpose. And it involves various stages along the way because it's a process. It's not an overnight thing. It's not a one-year thing, two-year thing. It's not a class. It's not a certificate. But it's something that God does with us as he challenges us each step along the way to become more of a disciple. Of course, you've got to get started somewhere, so that issue of salvation needs to be settled. You have to be sure of your salvation, so the issue of assurance needs to be settled. Because if you're spinning your wheels in doubt and insecurity, you're really not going to make any forward motion. You're always looking back. You can't go forward. You need to know that you're saved through the grace of God alone because you've trusted in Jesus Christ for the gift of eternal life. And he paid for that gift with his death and, his, and gives you his life through his resurrection. When that's settled now, you have a purpose in life and you get on the path of discipleship that Jesus has for you. And you begin to learn these lessons along the way like Peter did. For Peter, it took three years, but you know, it took longer than that. 
because we see in Galatians chapter 2, Paul was teaching Peter a few lessons. Still, Peter had many opportunities to advance down that path throughout the book of Acts and through his experience. So what you need to see is that it's a process, but we all have to start somewhere. And we have to be patient with those that we're discipling because you know people aren't born into the family fully matured. But when we fish for men, they come in all slimy, and we got to God got to clean them up and and uh, do something with that mess. And like a little baby is going to have dirty diapers, and so we have to be patient as we bring people along and and teach them very patiently. There's a sense in which a disciple is always being challenged to become more of a disciple, and to me that makes life exciting. Uh, I don't feel in any sense that I've arrived, but I, I I wake up in the morning with a sense of, boy, what's God going to challenge me to do today? And God's not usually too lax in putting new challenges in my lap. And I bet he does the same with you. I bet recently you could probably point to something that said, God has just challenged me to step it up a little bit in this area of my life. So you know what I'm talking about. That's the nature of following Jesus and discipleship. Let me leave you with a, a thought as you think about discipleship. Christians have never changed the world. Only disciples have. Think about that. Christians have never changed the world. Only disciples have. Now, are you going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Have you found someone who knows more than you, who you might call a mentor? from whom you can learn? Are you in a group or in a learning situation? Are you responding to the commands of Jesus Christ, to his promptings and to his direction for a new purpose in life? Are you committed to serving him with your life with the ultimate purpose of bringing people to him and bringing them up in him? Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.